That's Genesis 12, 10 through 20 on page 9. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. The word of the Lord. Now this passage is very familiar to you now since we read it both weeks, so uh, we kind of try to tease it out a little bit. And, no, not really. We just messed up last week. But, but let me clarify one thing before we get into this passage. Uh, you may have heard Andrew read the story and he referred to the main character as Abram. And I've been talking to him about him as Abraham. Both are right, in a sense. Uh, this person, as, long, as well as his wife, are referred to by different names in the beginning of the story. And then in chapter 17 of Genesis, and we'll get there in time, their names change. God changes their name. So Abram Abraham becomes Abraham and Sarah becomes Sarah. And that change in, uh, in the name symbolizes God's intervention into their lives and emphasizing the promises that he gave them. So Abraham means uh, the father of a multitude. Abram just means exalted father. So he started out as, if you will, Papa, and then he ends up with, B, with Big Papa. So that's the change. And he loved it when people called him Big Papa. <laughs> For consistency's sake, I'm going to push through. If nobody gets that joke, it's okay. <laughs> For consistency's sake, I'm just going to refer to Abraham and Sarah as Abraham and Sarah throughout the whole series, just so not to confuse myself and you. All right, so last week we, we looked at Abraham, and, and maybe you were inspired and encouraged by this man's faith, right? He responded to God's call and God set some very significant demands before him. He said, leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your father's house. It's a lot of very difficult decisions and Abraham, Abraham responded well. He left all that he needed to leave and pursued God's call to go to another place that God was going to show him to receive the blessings from God. Now, you may have been inspired by last week, and then you get to this week, and it should at least a little bit be puzzling to you. What is, what is happening here with Abraham, this spiritual giant, right, this man of faith? Really what he does is he pimps out his wife to Pharaoh. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. 
he decides to pretend that Sarah is his sister so that she could go into Pharaoh's harem so he could be safe and so he could get possessions from Pharaoh. Let's be honest, this is a despicable, despicable act. And yet, if you read commentaries, especially early Christian commentaries, you will see that many Bible teachers try to explain this passage as anything but a failure. So they spiritualize, they allegorize, they rationalize to make Abraham to look like a moral, virtuous, spiritual man. That's what we call in the industry as crazy talk. Sometimes I just read a commentary and on the margins I just put down crazy talk because it doesn't make any sense in the text. I mean, if you read the story, it's clear that Abraham failed and he failed miserably. He did something that was wrong. He didn't act according to his new calling by God, his new nature in God. What we have here in our text is an honest record, an honest record of one believer's spectacular failure. That's not all we have, because also we have the record of God's unrelenting faithfulness in protecting and blessing Abraham and Sarah even in the midst of their failure. So we have the spectacular failure and we have the surprising faithfulness of God both in the same story. When I thought about this text this week and this, this quote came to mind from John Newton. You may know John Newton. He wrote some of our hymns we sang today. He was a, a slave trader that, that turned... God turned into a preacher of grace. And when he was dying, he was 82 years old, he whispered to a friend, he said, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. So as he's dying and he's having a hard time remembering his life, he remembers these two truths that he's a great sinner, and yet Christ is a great Savior. That's what this sermon is about, essentially. That's what this text is about. We have a great sinner in Abraham, and we have a great Savior in God. So our outline is twofold, just two points. Uh, and the first one is a spectacular failure. first one is spectacular failure. And the second is surprising faithfulness. Spectacular failure and surprising faithfulness. Let's think about Abraham's failure. First, it's a failure of nerve. Failure of nerve. Abraham is a coward. He's afraid that he will get killed in Egypt. He has to go to Egypt because there's a famine and he wants to provide to his family, but instead of protecting his family his wife specifically, he passes her off as his sister, lets her to be taken into Pharaoh's harem, and all to save his own skin. It's bad. How much do you think Sarah respected her husband after that? 
just to save his own skin, he, he decides to, to let her protect him. Now, secondly, it's a moral failure. It wasn't just a moment of weakness when Abraham succumbed to fear. This is much worse than it may seem at first glance. If you were to look at Genesis chapter 20, verse 13, you would hear Abraham say this, When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, to Sarah, his wife, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he's my brother. Turns out, this was planned. You see, when Abraham first left his home, and he did that in response to God's call, remember, he decided on this strategy. He decided that any time they would go into a, a foreign country, Sarah would just pretend to be his sister to protect him. Genesis 20 is another time, the second time it happened along with the text that we read this morning. So at least it happened twice. We're talking about some, some serious ethical deficiency in this hero of faith. Abraham was willing to do that for his personal safety and enrichment. Now don't forget that, that he got rich off of Sarah. For Sarah's sake, Pharaoh gave Abraham sheep and oxen, and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. So moral failure, isn't it? Now, some of us, you know, we read the story um, and we think, what a, what a primitive, barbaric, oppressive culture. How could a man exchange his wife for donkeys and camels, right? And we think, well, thank goodness we don't live in such a backwards time anymore. Well, this is the time in our sermon where I ask the simple question. Really? Really? Are we really that much different from Abraham is our culture really that much different from his culture? Of course, we're not literally exchanging women, women for camels anymore. Well, congratulations. Let's acknowledge that. We've, we've overcome that. This is great. Pat ourselves on the back. We don't do that anymore. But, are we not sacrificing other people's beauty or talents for our benefit? Do we never exchange someone's appearance or skills or accomplishments in return for money or status? Do we not, like Abraham, exploit beauty for profit? Let me give you some examples. Ask an aging actress in Hollywood. How easy it is for her to get roles when she is, quote-unquote, past her prime. She used to get all the roles when she fit the producer's standard of beauty when she was younger. But now she's discarded. Her beauty is not what it used to be, so she, she's used up. She's been exploited, and now she doesn't get the same opportunities anymore. 
Now what about the parent who drags her daughter to every beauty pageant she can sign her up for? Is she not using her daughter's beauty for her own benefit? And just so we men don't feel left out of this analogy, what about the father who drags his son to all sorts of sporting events and signing him up to all sorts of competition to relive his glory days? Is it not exploiting someone's talent, someone's skill, someone's beauty for our benefit? Did you know that pornography is a 10 to 12 billion dollar industry in this country? 10 to 12 billion Dollars are spent by Americans on pornography each year. Is that not exploiting beauty for profit? We have a presidential candidate right now. I figured since I didn't get into enough trouble last week, I, I, I doubled down here. We have a presidential candidate right now who is openly misogynistic. <laughs> openly misogynistic. And he's doing very well in the polls. And part of the reason why he's doing really well in the polls is because evangelicals and social conservatives are supporting him. Are we not exploiting beauty for profit? The human heart is the same in any culture. We are all broken. Our culture is broken. We all share in the spectacular failure of humanity. So before we dismiss stories like this in the Bible, and there are many, as this backwards culture and outdated, archaic way of doing things, let's look at ourselves and let's ask ourselves in our evolved, advanced culture, are we really any better? Or have we just found more sophisticated ways to exploit others? And so we look at this story, we have to see our own culture here, we have to see ourselves here, because we too are moral failures like Abraham. But it's not all that's happening here. It isn't just him being a coward or him, him using Sarah's beauty for profit. There's a spiritual failure that comes as well. So there's a spiritual failure. Think back to last week's passage. What were God's promises to Abraham? Remember, God said, I'll make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promises Abraham land, offspring, name or reputation, And also he promises that he would be a blessing to other people. Now all of that is is promised to him. And in our passage, Abraham promptly rejects every one of these promises. It's almost comical to see how every one of those promises is, is now destroyed by Abraham's failure, at least for a time. Abraham leaves the land, right, that God promised to him. He goes to Egypt. God didn't promise him Egypt. God promised him Canaan. So he goes to another land. He takes his wife through whom this promised child is supposed to come and he puts her in another man's bed. There was a promise. You're going to have a child through this woman. Abraham's reputation is ruined. 
His name is not great in Egypt. He's known there as a liar and a coward. Instead of being a blessing to Pharaoh, he is a curse. God afflicts Pharaoh and his palace with plagues because of Sarah's presence there. And to top it off, Abraham completely disregards God's promise to protect him, to bless those who bless him and to curse those who curse him. And he just tries to take care of it on his own. So he fails morally, and that's bad, but he also fails spiritually. He doesn't trust God. He doesn't accept God's promises as true. Every one of those promises is negated in Abraham's failure. Now, as you read this story, there are two ways to read it. One way, that's the way of the Sunday school lessons and the way of the moralists, it's to look at Abraham as a man of virtue and faith and look at him as as an example to emulate, be inspired by, as, as a man who experienced tremendous blessings in life as a result of his faithfulness to God's call. I'm sorry, I, I can't read the story like that. I don't know how we can look at this text, this particular part of the story, and say we are to emulate this man. I'm not inspired by Abraham. I don't want to be like that. I'd like to avoid these things in my life if I could. There's a better way to read it. The better way is to look at Abraham as an example of a broken person, of a messed up person, of a morally flawed and inconsistent struggling person. And in spite of what he is, and the Bible is very honest, like in this story, and we'll get to some other stuff as well, the Bible is very honest about who he is and what he's like. And in spite of all of that, God comes to him and blesses him. Not because of his achievements or virtues he is blessed, but in spite of his failures and vices he is blessed. Now that's inspiring to me. That's inspiring because I am Abraham. I'm also a failure. I'm also flawed. I'm also a coward. I may not have committed the same exact sins as he did, but I am a sinner. I do stuff like that. And so for me to read this story, and maybe for you as well, and to see that God still comes into his life, that God blesses him in spite of all his problems, that though he is now faithless to God, God remains faithful to him in Egypt. Grace breaks into a life of someone like Abraham, someone like me. And if God can do that for Abraham, if he can preserve his life and Sarah's life, if God can provide for them, if God can bless them and keep His promises to them even when they failed, well, He can do that for me too. That makes me encouraged. That makes me feel better about my prospects in life. If God is this kind of God, because I know I am the kind of man that Abraham is, then maybe there's hope for me. You see, the Bible is a book about people like us, broken people. Don't look to Bible characters for inspiration, please. There's a couple that can provide that, but most of them can't. 
You'll have a hard time explaining Noah's drunkenness and Judah's immorality and Moses' violence and David's adultery and Solomon's idolatry and Peter's denial. I mean, all those things are in the Bible. The Bible is a record of God's gracious intervention into sinners' lives. God doesn't bless people who are good. He blesses bad people. Moral and spiritual failure, spectacular sinners, and God blesses us anyway. God didn't choose Abraham because he was the spiritual giant. Remember, he comes from a heathen, idolatrous family. He's not what you would expect to be the standard of virtue and religious observance. God chooses him and God changes him. It's not because Abraham just conjured up this faith that God now had to bless him. In many ways, his faith is a result of God's grace in his life. It's a response to what God is doing with him. God's call doesn't come on the basis of our moral standards or commitment to virtue. God's call comes by grace. God's call is undeserved. It is gracious by its very nature. So the question we must all wrestle with today is this. Do you see Abraham in yourself? Do you think you are capable of this level of spiritual and moral failure? Do you think you are capable of the same sins as Abraham? I'm not just talking about unbelievers. It's easy just to say, well, uh, that's, that's unconverted people. Abraham is a believer. We need to go to a Puritan to get the, the force of this truth. Thomas Boston says that if we look into our own corrupt nature, we may see the seed and the root of every sin. Every sin is present in our hearts in its potential. That doesn't mean we all sin the same way. That doesn't mean we all commit the same sins. But we are all capable of any sin. This is what Boston says. Now listen to the analogy and listen to the language that hopefully brings this home. He says there's atheism, idolatry, blasphemy, murder, adultery, and whatever is vile in your heart. He gives you this list of things and he says all of that is in your heart. Possibly none of these are apparent to you, but there is more in that unfathomable depth of wickedness than you know. Your corrupt heart is like an ant's nest, which while the stone lies on it, none of them appear. But take off the stone and stir them up with the straw, and you will see what a swarm is there, and how lively they are. Just such a sight would your heart afford you. Did the Lord but withdraw the restraint he has upon it, and allow Satan to stir it up by temptation? What is he saying? He's saying it's covered up in your heart. 
There's lots of stuff in your heart you don't even know about. And it could easily get stirred up by temptation. Should the Lord decide to lift off His restraint on our enemy? If He takes grace away, there's no telling what vile and unfathomable acts we can commit. But the Lord is gracious to preserve us. The Lord is gracious to restrain us. Even unbelievers, He does that. It's what we call common grace. The Lord is gracious even to those who are not His children. But if that restraint is lifted off, all sin is in its potential is there. And so any sin could blossom and grow into a full-fledged moral and spiritual failure. So the question for us is, do we recognize that the only reason that I have not sinned in all the ways that I can is because God's grace has restrained me? Do you realize that there are certain things that you have not committed in your life, not because you're not capable of them, but because God in His great mercy has decided to prevent you from doing that? God has put restrictions in your life, limitations in your life, whether it's through your family, through your upbringing, through the law, through your community, through whatever moral aspirations you have. All of those are God's gracious restrictions on your life so you don't sin as much as you want and as much as you can. Am I capable in my heart to do the vilest of sins? What is your answer? Yes, we're all capable of that. I had to wrestle with that when two weeks ago, whenever it was, three weeks ago when Ashley Madison's scandal broke and we realized that there are many pastors that put their names, that the names of many pastors were leaked from this website that facilitated extramarital affairs. And it's easy to say, especially for a pastor, to say, oh, look at those sinners, right? But I had to ask myself, am I capable of the same sin? And the answer is yes, of course I'm capable. I'm thankful that God's grace prevented me from that. That He is, he is merciful to me. But that's not because I am incapable of that. Of course I am. I have the same heart as any one of the pastors that's on that list, as any one of the people that's on that list. I'm no different. I can fall just as easily. My heart is just as sinful, and I need just as much grace to restrain me. Let me give you one more story, and, and, and then we'll move on to, to the last point. There's a story that's told about a, a monk, a desert father. You may have heard of the desert fathers. There are books written of their sayings. You can Usually it's a collection of sayings from the Desert Fathers. They were 3rd, 4th, 5th century uh, Egyptian primarily, but also Syrian Christians who left the big cities to pursue a life of prayer and contemplation in the desert, away from the sin of the city. They wanted to pursue God in solitude, often in solitude, sometimes in community with other monks. So for one reason or another, this one old monk has to visit the city again, has to return to the city for something. And as he and his companions approach the city, they see a prostitute advertising her services to prospective clients right in the city. And the old monk just breaks down and weeps. He starts crying. So one of his friends asks him, 
if he is lamenting the lost state of the woman, that she is so far gone, that she is so sinful. And the monk says, I'm crying because I feel compassion towards her. Yes, I see her need for God. But I'm also crying, he said, because I realize that I am not willing to please my Lord as much as she is willing to please her clients. I am not willing to please my Lord as much as she is willing to please her clients. He can't look at someone else's sin without realizing his own sin. Can you? Looking at someone who has failed, like Abraham, like this woman in the city, like the pastors on the list at Ashley Madison, are we looking at them and saying, this can never happen to me. I'm not like that. Or are we lamenting their failure and also realizing that there is much sin in me and I could do that as well as they did? This is a very important gospel truth to come to grips with. Because unless we see ourselves as great sinners, not just mediocre sinners, but as great sinners, we won't see Christ as a great Savior. It's like a seesaw. The lower you go, the higher Christ is going to go. So the lower you see yourself in your sin, the higher Christ is going to be, be in your estimation. It's so important for us to come to grips with who we are and say that I am a failure. That's who I am. I am broken. I could do all those things if it wasn't for God's grace in my life. Unless we do that, we will not see Christ as a great Savior. Unless we see the depth of our own sinfulness, we will not grasp the power of His grace to us. That's what this story is about, the spectacular failure. But it's also about surprising faithfulness. We can't stay where I took you just now, okay? Can't stay there. That's who we are, but that's not who God will make us. And that's not who God is. In our faithlessness, God proves himself to be faithful. In our brokenness, God comes in and fixes us. And so let's focus on that and let's see how God responds to Abraham's failure. We're all failures, right? If John says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we're all in need of God's intervention. And that's what happens in our text. God is surprisingly faithful to Abraham. Look at what God does here. He delivers Sarah out of Pharaoh's harem. He protects Abraham and Sarah and safely brings them out of Egypt back into Canaan. Abraham doesn't only survive a famine and whatever dangers that he had in Egypt, he actually leaves much richer than when he came to Egypt. So Abraham is a beneficiary of God's great blessing in Egypt in the midst of his own brokenness. Now that is surprising because God doesn't owe him anything. God can easily just walk away when we fail. 
God can say, you're so broken, why am I wasting my time on you? And yet, surprisingly, that's not what God does. God sticks with us. He sticks with Abraham and Sarah, and He blesses them, not because they deserved it, but because God is faithful to them. Grace is always surprising. And, and, and if we ever get used to this idea of grace, we need to wake up and, and start reading the Scriptures again. It's, it's not something that is normal. When God is gracious to us, whether it's in salvation or in your life, when He blesses you, that's unusual, that's surprising. He's not supposed to do that. And yet He does because He is that kind of God. So it is surprising in that sense, but it's not surprising in the sense that that's who He is. He's a faithful God, He's a gracious God, He's a loving God. And so He is acting in accordance with His nature. He does fulfill the promises that He made. And so if we put this story, which we just focused on as its own kind of a thing, but if we put this story in the context of the greater story of the Bible, it makes sense. Because God has been faithful to unfaithful people many times throughout Scripture and throughout our lives. In fact, this story, Genesis 12, points to another story in the Bible where God is faithful to His people who are not faithful to Him. I was reading this commentary on Genesis and Robert Alter, the author of this commentary, writes this about this text. He says, it is the first instance of type scene in biblical narrative. It's a type scene in which a writer invokes a fixed sequence of narrative motifs familiar as a convention to his audience while pointedly modifying them in keeping with the needs of the immediate narrative context. As I read this, I realized nobody understood what I just said. I'm barely comprehending what I'm, what I'm reading right now. This is what he's saying. He says that when the author of Genesis wrote this, he's deliberately painting a picture pointing to another story. So he's showing the sequence of events, he's showing the characters, the setting, that makes people who read this think about something else. Now remember that Genesis is written after the Israelites leave Egypt. Moses gives them the law and gives them these books, the five books, after they've been liberated from Egypt. So the people who are reading this, the first audience for Genesis, are the redeemed slaves from Egypt. And so when they're reading this, of course they're thinking about Egypt and they're thinking about what God did for them. I mean, think about all the similarities. They too were slaves in Egypt like Sarah, enslaved by Pharaoh. They too went to Egypt because there was a famine in Canaan. They too see a lot of spiritual and moral failure in their leadership, and yet they too saw that God took them out, that God was faithful to them to take them out of slavery even though they were not faithful to Him. They were not worshiping God. And yet God shows up and takes them out. He redeems them. That's what the book of Exodus is about. So as people are reading this, they're thinking, oh, so it wasn't just a one-time thing. God does that all the time. God did that with Abraham, our forefather. He did that with us. He's going to do it again. 
God will remain faithful even if we break faith with Him. They pick up on all these details. And one of the details that they have to pick up on is this idea of substitution. Now, you look at Abraham's story and how does he survive in Egypt? What is his plan in the beginning? His plan is to survive and to enrich himself for the sake of someone else. He says to Sarah, Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So he's saying, let's use you to bless me. You be the substitute for me, the sacrifice for me, we will sacrifice your beauty so I can get riches and safety. As the newly redeemed slave from Egypt reading this, they're thinking, God did something very similar with us in Egypt when we loved it last night. God said, pick a lamb, slaughter it, put its blood on the doorway so that your life will be spared for the sake of the Lamb. Whoever didn't do that, didn't claim that substitute, their firstborn died. But if you claimed that Lamb, if you claimed a substitute for yourself, by faith, a substitute provided to you by God, then you were okay, you were safe. You, in fact, enriched yourself, because remember the Egyptians gave them money to leave Egypt. In fact, you were kept safe when the Egyptian children died. Something happened where on behalf of someone else, for the sake of someone else, the Israelites were saved. Just like Abraham was saved for the sake of Sarah. Her beauty was sacrificed to spare his life. The lamb too, it wasn't just any lamb, it had to be a perfect lamb. Remember, it had to be a beautiful lamb. It had to be something worthy of the substitute. And so whoever placed their faith in the lamb was safe. God is faithful to his broken people. He's faithful to provide a substitute for us. Faithful to Abraham, faithful to Israel, faithful to us. Like Abraham, we should be able to say our lives have been spared for someone else's sake. Like the Israelites leaving slavery in Egypt, we should say, we have been redeemed because of a sacrifice in our place. We receive grace and forgiveness and blessing and help because of another, because of someone else. There is a substitute for us. The sacrifice of the beautiful Sarah saved Abraham. The sacrifice of the perfect Passover lamb saved Abraham the Israelite firstborn, the sacrifice of the beautiful and perfect Jesus saved us. It is well with us because of Jesus and our lives have been spared for His sake. Read the Bible this way. See the connections See how one passage points to the next and encourages us to look to our substitute. Yes, Abraham was a failure. 
But God is faithful. And God is consistently faithful. And nowhere else we see the two themes combine and intersect with each other as we see on the cross of Jesus. God had to die. That's how deep sin runs. There's no other way to save us but God had to die. How big is your sin? Well, it's at least as big as God because He had to die for you. We are so broken that God had to be broken for us. And yet, and yet, God, in His great love for us, in His rich mercy for us, wanted to die for us. He wanted to save us. Dying for us before we realized what was happening, before we could respond in faith. And so we see our failure on the cross in the brokenness of Jesus. And we see God's faithfulness on the cross in the sacrifice of Jesus. Those themes intersect like the beams of the cross. Yes, we are failures. And yes, God is faithful. Isaiah 53 tells us, Surely Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His stripes we are healed. Friend, look to the substitute. Remember your failure, but remember God's faithfulness in providing the sacrifice to cover your failure. And God is faithful in our lives. We're going to take communion together. And the way we're going to do it today, we're going to pass the elements. So first, we'll pass the bread. And we, we will sing as we pass it. So please hold on to it once you receive it. And then we will all pray a prayer of confession of our own failure and take it together. We will then sing another song and pass the cup. And again, hold on to it. We will then all say a prayer of rejoicing in God's salvation together and thanking Him for His faithfulness and take the cup together as we come together as a people redeemed by God. Not just individuals, but as a people redeemed by Him. If you're not a believer, I don't want you to just go through the motions. Don't just do it because everybody else is doing it. But please consider that even though you are a great failure, be honest with yourself, God is a great faithful God for you and He has provided a substitute. Embrace Him by faith. Let me pray and then we will sing and pass the elements. So I'll have the musicians come up as we pray. Father, we are so, so thankful. And we just want to reflect on these two themes of our failure and your faithfulness. We pray, Lord, that as we take the bread and the cup and we pass it around and as we sing, we pray that you would turn our minds to Jesus, our substitute. Work in our hearts now. Those of us who are not believers, bring us to Christ. Those of us who are, remind us of our substitute. Encourage us, even in the midst of our failure, we pray in His name.